Thank you, worship team. Let's give them. <laughs> Wonderful to take a moment to just stop and praise God and even to think about even the idea of his presence with us and, and in us. There's a lot of other presences that we're pretty keen to. Uh, it's a sad thing when we can't be keen to the presence of the Lord. So I appreciate the reminder that's embedded in that song. If you have a Bible, you could turn with me to James chapter 3. It will take us a little bit of time to get there. Just so you know, that's part of by design here. You'll understand as I begin to do what I do. But that is where we'll spend a little bit more time. Uh, but before we dive into this, I want to ask you a very compelling question. And that is this. Have you ever ordered spinach at McDonald's? See, I'm suspicious that you would answer that question, no. And furthermore, you might think, Rick, the reason we've never ordered spinach at McDonald's is because they don't serve it. Uh, to which I would say, au contraire. Uh, I think you have it backwards. The reason McDonald's doesn't serve it is because you would never order it. If you had a driving passion, if you were one of those people who looked at your wife and said, honey, let's pack up the kids and run off and get some spinach. If, if there were people like that, I guarantee you McDonald's would be happy to accommodate you. But for some reason, spinach doesn't really kind of register in that whole fast food, have it your way thing. Let's have spinach just isn't how it goes. And it's interesting because we know spinach is good for us. And many of us, and I would include myself on this count, I actually like spinach. I'm not like theologically opposed to spinach. I'm not even culinarily opposed to spinach. I like spinach fine, but when I think of spinach, I never think, I gotta have a double-double. That just isn't where it goes. So it's interesting when you think of a thing like spinach, there's lots of things like this that we know are good for us. We may even enjoy it, but we somehow just aren't drawn to go there. And let me suggest that gentleness is like that in the Christian life. We know we're supposed to be gentle. Many of us have actually memorized the fruit of the Spirit that we've heard rumors includes gentleness. But the thought of saying gentleness, yeah, I'd like a double-double, just doesn't seem to quite work for us. And I'm curious about that. I've, I've had this sense for a while. Uh, it was about a year ago that I read an article by an uh, acquaintance, a scholar at, at Baylor, Perry Glanzer. And uh, he was intrigued by this too. And fortunately, nice to have buddies who like libraries, he went and did the work on what about gentleness? Do we actually think and talk about it? Here's what he said. I searched for scholarly articles in the past 30 years empirically examining this virtue. I did not find one. Only references for gentle was the researchers whose study method included the phrase gentle prodding. <laughs> A Google gram indicated the use of the word gentle is at its lowest point in the last 300 years. What's the reason for this almost complete lack of interest in and aspiration towards gentleness? Glanzer 
suggested that the reason we don't like gentleness so much is that we forget our identity as people who bear the image of God and instead embrace a sense of ourselves becoming gods. That that's what we'd kind of actually like to be. It goes obviously back to the garden. He's not coming up with a new thought here. Um, he says, like kings of old, we're fearful of being supplanted. Gentleness would reveal weakness and the tenuous nature of our supposed reign. Gentle makes no sense in a world striving for power. It's good insight. And then he offers a wonderful definition description of gentleness that bears sharing. He says, gentleness is the sensitivity and willingness to forego power for the sake or benefit of another person. Gentleness is a caring, calm humility that allows one to see others as God sees them. It's a great description. Now, you may also be sitting here right now thinking, Rick, now that you've officially verified the fact that nobody really wants gentleness, why are you standing in front of me trying to sell it to me? Legitimate question. In this case, there's kind of a simple answer that's not stunningly spiritual, but hey, here it is. Um, I was speaking, I asked to speak at a Talbot Chapel, well, six weeks ago or so, and the Talbot Chapel theme for the year was sola scriptura. So this is picking up a phrase from the Reformation about uh, only scriptures, literally what that means from the, from the Latin, but the idea is scripture is kind of the sole authority. We're not going to add scripture and councils and all these other kinds of things, but, but uh, only scripture would be our authority. But then they unpacked this phrase. In the email I got kind of describing the theme, um, it says in the unpacking of this phrase, at a time when our culture embraces moral relativism as the rule of law, and modern theories and movements are elevated to a level that they supplant the Bible in authority, it's important both to equip and model to our students one of Biola's primary distinctives, that we should think biblically about everything. Now, I'm the guy who does heads up the Office of Faith and Learning at Biola, so I spend my every waking hour at Biola thinking about how do we think biblically about everything. So I decided to go on a rampage and say, how about if we think biblically about gentleness? And more particularly, picking up this theme that I was sent, here's the question I'd like to ask, is whether or not we have become moral relativists when it comes to biblical teaching about gentleness. The same way we talk about becoming moral relativists about, for example, biblical teaching about sexuality, where we say, I am happy to honor all biblical teaching related to sexuality, as long as I agree with it. Of course, if I don't agree with it, well, <laughs> hey, there it goes. And that's what we call moral relativism. And I'm suspicious that we are prone to do that with gentleness. I'm happy to embrace all biblical teaching about gentleness, as long as I feel like being gentle at any given moment. But if biblical teaching about gentleness would tell me to be gentle when I don't want to be, then I won't. I might even feel self-righteous about not doing that. And that makes me worry that we've become moral relativists 
relative to biblical teaching about gentleness. Why does that concern me so much? Well, I feel like I see that all around me in our culture today, and unfortunately, pretty much in equal amounts in the church as well. There's what you might call the progressive stripe of anti-gentleness. Um, roughly speaking is, they say, you can't invoke gentleness and respect when someone's knee is on your throat. In fact, the reason people appeal to gentleness and respect is that they don't want to confront the structures of oppression that permeate our society. Civility is a tool that's used to silence the voice of the disenfranchised. Okay. Of course, the conservative side has its own version of anti-gentleness. It goes roughly like this. When elections are stolen, there is no time for civility. That is no time for gentle words. That time has passed. We're not going to bow to the cultural elite any longer. We're going to have to own the libs, boldly speaking conservative thought in ways that is infuriating, I'm quoting this section now, that are infuriating, flummoxing, and otherwise distressing to the liberals. Okay. And I just ask, have we become moral relativists regarding the biblical teaching about gentleness? I'm happy to be gentle as long as I want to be. So let me make my case for gentleness. And I hate to say it this way, I don't want to sound like I'm a man without hope, but I'm not really that optimistic about me swaying the people on the two fringes I've just referred to. Because they're pretty set in their ways and I've chatted to a few and it really hasn't gone that wonderfully. So. I'm worried about everybody in the middle because of these two poles. What I worry is everyone who occupies a middle ground who might actually be open saying, yeah, you know what, gentleness does matter. And the fruit of the spirit matters and I should probably really just plain do this. Those who live in the middle have become very fearful of speaking up. And let me just mention that gentleness is not incompatible with courage and in fact, gentleness often requires courage. So if you live in this middle ground that just says, oh Lord, I pray you'd help me duck and cover, I'm suggesting this morning that you might want to pray bolder prayers of courage relative to gentleness and say, you know, it's time I opt in. I'll take a double-double. So let me begin by giving my defense of gentleness, biblically. And we're gonna work our way to James 3 at the end, but I would, I think the compellingness of this case is exactly in that I have no need to exegete it from a single passage, but rather I can hardly avoid it when I read my New Testament. So let me begin by just saying gentleness is what Jesus models for us. So you think of Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit, and you'll find rest for your souls. Wow. 
So Jesus gives his own self-characterization to us exactly in the context where he's saying, become like me, right? That's his exhortation built into it. And what kind of like me is it? That you become gentle and lowly in spirit so that you might find rest for your souls. Now here's what's really, really interesting about that passage. Is that it's not a statement of Jesus's personality type. He didn't take strength finders and said, hey, I'm a gentle, how about that? It wasn't, you know, number 10 on the Enneagram or anything. It's different than that. It might have been his personality, I have no idea, but I do have this idea. It was the fulfillment of prophecy regarding Jesus. So if you just read a few more verses from what I just read here, Matthew unpacks this and he says, talking about all these people who are following him in Matthew 12, 18 through 21. He had healed all these people, all these people are coming to him, he's telling them not to speak and not to tell all the story. And then Matthew writes, and this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And what was that? I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. That sounds good, we do justice today. And he will not quarrel. Uh Uh-oh. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And it's interesting, he closes this little pericope with this phrase, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Here is a crazy thing that I can't believe I'm actually saying this in 2022. But it seems like Jesus thought he could advocate for social justice with gentleness. Who knew? And by the way, that was prophesied about him 700 years before he was born. This isn't an accident, this is divine intention. And in fact, it is a reflection of the divine person who they knew before the foundations of time was going to become incarnate here, right? Interesting how Jesus models for us gentleness. And gentleness is also a fruit of the Spirit. Paul writes Galatians 5, 25 and 26, um, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. By the way, that's a really good point to make these days. Sometimes I feel like there's a law against gentleness. The way people talk. It's interesting. By the way, let me just point out, the biblical language on this is important. It talks about the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. The image here isn't like, oh, what's your favorite fruit? Um, You know, you guys all go through buffets, right? And say, oh, I love the cantaloupe, hate the pineapple, love the cantaloupe, so I'll have some cantaloupe. Isn't that great? Fruit of the Spirit aren't like that. It is singular fruit. This is what erupts from our life when we are filled with the Spirit. In that sense, it's very different than the gifts of the Spirit, which are plural, And which are, it isn't so much that you get to go through the smorgasbord and choose your favorite. It's that God 
ordains a gift for you. The Holy Spirit appoints a gift to each person individually as he wills, says 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, if memory serves. Um, so gifts are different in the sense that we don't expect everyone to have all of them. And part of the whole point of the body is that we need each other, so we depend on each other and all this. We have individual gifts of the Spirit. We have a singular fruit of the Spirit. It's just what we're supposed to look like when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So you don't actually get to opt out. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness is my favorite one. Love is one. I love joy. That's great. I'm glad you love joy. I'm in favor of loving joy. But you don't get to opt out of gentleness, even if anger is what makes you joyful. <laughs> Crazy but true. Gentleness is the plea of the apostles for the body of Christ. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What does Paul pray for the Ephesian church? What does he long for for them? Well, that they'd walk in a manner of life worthy of the calling of Jesus. What in the world does that look like? Humility and gentleness? This is the God of the universe. Surely we could upgrade our attributes. But no, humility and gentleness. Gentleness is a necessary qualification for Christian leadership. It is one of the qualities always associated with elders. 1 Timothy chapter 3, for example. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and hospitable, able to teach, there's quite a list, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. Gentleness is one of the things that qualifies you to be a spiritual leader. I'd point out that probably applies in a home every bit as much that it applies in a church. It's a quality of Christian leadership. It's essential, gentleness is essential for our response to non-believers. 1 Peter 3.15, Peter writes, in your hearts honor Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an account of the hope that is within you, but give it with gentleness and respect. So you want to convey the Christian faith to non-believers. How do we do it? Well, Peter says, be ready to do it, but here's how I want you to do it, with gentleness and respect. Gentleness is essential for restoration from sin and failure. Paul writes in Galatians 6, chapter 1, Brothers, if any one of you is caught in a transgression, not that that would ever happen, but hey, if any one of you is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him 
in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted to. Wow. Okay. Here's one of my favorites. Apparently gentle even works for Christians who've been caught by the devil and deceived by him. Okay, I thought we'd be bringing out the heavy artillery at that point, but apparently, gentle sorts. Here's what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, and correcting his opponents with gentleness. And here's where it gets really interesting. It says, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So he is now talking about people, these opponents, who are literally wrong, okay? They are mistaken. And Paul's saying, how do you respond to them? He says that you correct with gentleness. Why? Because I have the hope that they might be corrected, that they might hear the correction but notice his description that they may that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Who is it that you don't want to be gentle to? Is it some guy who's been captured by Satan to do Satan's will? Well, <laughs> I, I'm thinking that we don't even have to, like, extrapolate the application to that one, right? That just says that's how you deal with one of them. And then finally, James chapter 3. This is a, a passage that I have recently memorized. I write it in the Winsome Conviction book that I recently uh, wrote with Tim, who, yes, I know, told you to tell me that he was absolutely life-changing and I was pretty good when I preached. I, I've heard the message. My good friend, Tim, who I didn't check references on before I befriended. Okay. <laughs> so, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. It's an interesting passage because he begins talking. Notice how much James talks about our, our words. It is a relentless theme in James to talk about how we talk to one another. It kind of reached a culmination here right in the middle of the book in James chapter 3, verse 13. And he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good contact, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You could translate that actually in the gentleness of wisdom if you prefer. It doesn't matter. The idea is the same. That's interesting. But then he says, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. He said, this is not the wisdom that comes down from the above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Wow, for where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, where they exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial 
and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So notice what James is doing here is contrasting two different types of wisdom, what he calls earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Earthly wisdom is marked by his tendency towards jealousy and strife and all of these sorts of things. Um, he calls it a denial of the truth. It's the absence of wisdom. It's anti-wisdom, really, this wisdom of, of, of the earth. And he contrasts this with a heavenly wisdom that's marked by what? Well, first pure, then peaceful, then gentle and open to reason. Wow. Now, the reason I find this so striking, particularly relative to what I'm talking about here, is this contrast is so strong. Basically, he's saying that false wisdom, this earthly wisdom, is basically unspiritual and demonic, quote, wisdom. It's actually false to the truth. And let me just put it bluntly, it seems like this sort of, quote, wisdom is actually a heresy, right? This is the kind of language that's being used. Um, he's not viewing gentleness and respect that he describes as part of earthly wisdom. He says, hey, just a bright idea. It might pay off. Sometimes a gentle answer turns away wrath. I mean, I realize that's biblical. I'm just saying James is going way beyond that here. And he's saying, guys, this other way you're talking, <laughs> this has the marks of things that are actually demonic, heretical. He invokes the language of spiritual battle, heresy, and false teaching. I don't know that there's any stronger language available in the New Testament to speak to this issue than that. And so let me put it simply, this is why I don't think we should be moral relativists when it comes to gentleness. Because I don't think the Bible is. The Bible seems to kind of have its... This sounds weird, but the Bible kind of has its hair on fire relative to gentleness, right? It's pretty robust in its argument for gentleness. So how should we then view ungentleness when we find it in ourselves or others? I read an article recently that was more or less talking about this, but it had a provocative title. It said, cruelty is apostasy. And I'm like, wow, okay. Um, and they were talking about how some Christians had treated each other and it had drifted into cruelty. And I thought, okay, I, I get their point. Now, I don't want to get in a technical fight over the meaning of a word like apostasy or heresy. These are words that technically usually we associate with a failure of belief, a denial of core doctrines of the faith is usually what we you know, what, what constitutes that. Um, and apostasy is a little bit different. It has indications of departure from the faith, which might be closer to the point here. But let me just say, I don't really care to make the argument that ungentleness is a heresy or apostasy or whatever. Let me just make this suggestion. Let me ask it as a question. Does a persistent, unrepentant refusal to practice gentleness and respect towards others count as evidence against the genuineness of one's commitment to follow Christ. 
we're properly cautious about distinguishing a person's, identifying a person's profession of faith just by what they do. We understand that people who have a genuine faith can fail to be, behave in certain ways. And so I think it's right to take professions of faith at self-value. And whenever you find anyone who's ungentle, not to just argue, oh, they must not really be a Christian. But notice I'm not really asking that in this one. I'm saying, no, a persistent commitment to what you might call anti-gentleness. You wonder, how do you wash that? Is it not in some way analogous to a persistent commitment not to practice biblical sexual ethics or biblical ethics regarding any variety of other things? If we just say, I'm not planning on doing that. Jesus himself sort of makes this point. He says, look, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's in this context, he says, the tree will be recognized by the fruit. So we're invited, in effect, to view the presence of the fruit of the Spirit as a vindication of the reality of the root of the Spirit in a person's heart. And as I've already said, we want to be careful in terms of how much we leap that way. But I'm not really asking it because I'm wanting you to run judge someone. I'm really wanting you to apply this to yourself. Because I'm hoping that in any of these areas, you suddenly realize, oh, wow, I have been practicing, or I've been hanging out with people who practice, and I'm going with the flow on this. Things that really seem contrary to the Bible, I'm like, wow, you should take note. And you should be really worried, not so much by individual instances of this, but a habituated disposition to act in a fashion like that should make you worry that, am I searing my conscience? to the voice and work of the Holy Spirit. Because I'm refusing to let certain virtues that the Spirit works in our lives be expressed in mine. Um, so yeah, you begin to look at this and say, it's really kind of problematic to become a moral relativist when it comes to gentleness. Now, you're not the first group of people I've talked to about this, and I've heard some pushback. You're probably ready with some pushback for me on this. Um, and one of the first thing that comes out is that, yeah, well, what about Jesus? He turned over the tables in the temple, right? I'm familiar with the passage, actually. So you're right. He did do that. And let me point out, I think that's actually a totally, not just legitimate objection to bring up, but a good thing to say, I think all this stuff you're saying, Rick, might need some nuance because Jesus really did do that, right? So let me just say at the outset, fair enough. That is a totally legitimate concern to raise. And let me just make the observation that when I'm saying gentleness is part of what's required of us, I would not say gentleness is the only thing that's required of us. It's not the, the one thing that trumps all other things. I have the opposite concern. I'm just saying, I don't think we're in danger of over-trumping gentleness at this moment in our culture. I think we have the opposite concern. That's what drives me to anxiety. That said, I could live in a different place and time and have the opposite worries. We're dying by gentleness, folks. We need to get something going here. Right. So fair enough. And please don't hear me saying all and everything reduces to gentleness because I don't believe that to be true. Now, that said, when we think about Jesus, um, I think the first thing I would want to say in light of this observation 
is that gentleness absolutely does not mean, it cannot mean, a lack of discernment, a particular lack of moral discernment or moral conviction. And it cannot mean a denial of final judgment or even speaking words of judgment in this present age because that you do find ubiquitously in the New Testament as well. So gentleness has nothing to do with the absence of moral discernment or the, the wallowing of our moral convictions, that they become mushy uh, because they shouldn't be mushy. And I would like to point out in the context where this comes up with Jesus cleansing the temple, the concerns on the table are pretty much concerns of what you might call eternal destiny. Uh, he's talking to Pharisees about binding people with burdens that they cannot bear, that they didn't bear themselves, and now they're making all the people who follow them twice as much a children of a spawn of Satan as they are themselves. It's like, oh, okay, these are big things he's worried about. They are basically teaching them to deny the things that will ultimately save them. Um, he's making, these guys are making people children of hell. They're conspiring to kill Jesus. They're committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Um, so I'd just like to just begin with an observation that Jesus wasn't turning over the tables in the temple because he didn't like mask mandates. And he might well not have liked them. I'm just making the observation that what led the temples to turn over, the tables to turn over, was kind of a big deal thing. It's like, guys, you're on the on the verge of running the risk of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, perhaps you're actually over the hill and on the downside of that. This is a big deal. The other thing that's super clear and transparently clear and literally stated to us in the Gospels is this delightful phrase, and Jesus knew what was in their hearts. So there's a thought. Before you play the... Uh, I'm going to call you a whitewashed sepulcher card. Uh, following the example of Jesus, just stop and think, do I have as good a grip on what's in their heart as Jesus did? Now let me, that's obviously a bit of a false argument because you don't have as good a grip as, on anything as Jesus did. So I got that. But I would like to suggest you could probably do better. You could probably get a little closer to a grip on what's really going in their heart if you'd like to. In fact, here's a crazy thought. You might try approaching them with gentleness to find out what is in their heart. And if you're that committed to playing the uh, whitewashed sepulcher card, then you'll get your chance to do it once you've discovered what's actually in their hearts. But I tell you, see, I've had a lot of these conversations in the last few years. I've heard several people say things like, I already know what they think. And I'm like, do you? Why don't you tell me? And they begin to describe what the person on the other side is, quote, thinking. And I'm like, I doubt it. <laughs> I've talked to that person too, or I've talked to other people who share that. I don't think they would ever state their opinion the way you just stated it. And you guys know how easy it is to tweak like two words in a sentence and change it completely from something another person would happily agree with and any reasonable person might agree with to something almost no one would agree with. So we have a knack for, for thinking we know what's in the heart because 
here's one of the things we often do. We, we look at what another person does and said, if I did that, I know what would be in my heart. Wow. You know, the, the past we carry with us, our carry-on baggage, I, I look around this room, several of you I've known for 30 or 40 years, I'm actually somewhat familiar with your carry-on baggage, there's a scary thought. <laughs> but the things we bring to the table before some interchange happens are so different and they're so deep that you might say three words, the other person reacts and you instantly think, if I were to react that way to a statement, here's what would be going on in my life. Well, that's delightful to know. But the real question is, what is it that was going on in their life? So we've done a ton of these kind of dialogues and conversations with people. And the first thing we do before we ever have any of these dialogues, particularly if they're at all public, is have a long time where we sit over tell dinner and tell each other backstories. What sits behind your viewpoint? When did you first begin to think that way? Who are some of the people who really shaped your opinion? And suddenly you realize people land at the places they land, A, for the most incredible diversity of reasons, but B, for an uncanny number of actually pretty good reasons. And oftentimes we don't have the patience another fruit of the Spirit, to hear them. So, I don't want to tell you that there's never time to turn over a table or call someone a whitewashed sepulcher. I was going to do a similar thing with Paul, but Paul goes off on calling, you know, I wish they would not just circumcise each other, but like go all the way. Okay, that's a robust, anti-gentle way to put it, Paul. So I get it that this happens, but I would like to just say, even with Paul, he's talking about a batch of people who spent an awful lot of time getting to know. And then he gives an account in that passage again of, you think I don't know Judaism? Let me update you. I was born Hebrew, born of Hebrews, uh, the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, and he goes on to describe how thoroughly he knew and understood the theology of the people he was concerned about. So, yes, there are these alternatives, all these points that push back. But let me just point out, number one, they aren't the most pervasive things. When we think about Jesus, uh, when people in his own time decided, I know what to mock Jesus for. I know how to label him as a bad guy. They chose the label of he's a guy who's a friend of sinners or things like that. <laughs> kind of the things that were somewhat compatible with the gentleness thing. And no one said... Yeah, Jesus, I know Jesus. He's the guy who's always angry, shouting at people. That just wasn't what they accused him of. And I think that's because that wasn't how he prevailingly came across. So I'm thinking, why don't we come across prevailingly the way he did? So I thought. A couple of final notes. I did some thinking about this and going, why do I worry about this as much as I do? And it's partly because I'm worried that there's certain crops that grow in the soil of gentleness that don't grow well in other soils. And I think we like those crops better than we think we do. So we might want to cultivate gentleness so those crops can grow in our midst. So let me just read a few of these. It's quicker if I read them. So number one, crops that grow in the soil of gentleness is community. All the anti-gentle postures that you find in Scripture, like strife and wrath and pride, are always associated with division. If you want to live with others in the body of Christ, gentleness is required. 
In fact, the physical body is actually a really good metaphor for this. We always treat our body parts with gentleness. If your foot is hurting you, adjust your gait so it doesn't hurt it. I know because my left heel is killing me. Plantar fasciitis, straight from the devil. Anyhow, <laughs> my body adjusts to accommodate that. If your hand is hurting, you open the jar with the other hand. If both hands hurt, you open the jar with your husband's hands. I know how this works. So we accommodate this, and we never say to another body part, I have no need of you. I have no need of you. Foot, you hurt me. I don't need you any longer. Second thing that grows in the soil of gentleness is faith. In fact, gentleness demands faith of us. We have to grow in faith because we give up a certain amount of assertive control over outcomes. We trust God to bring about his will, not just trust ourselves to bring about our vision of his will. Gentleness requires an act of faith, a trust that God will act on your behalf. Not that you do nothing, but that you don't feel like you have to do everything. There's some things you can let go. Third, peace is a crop that grows in gentle soil. Gentleness grows both internal and external peace. You remember the quote I gave you of Jesus talking about finding peace for your heart by taking on a yoke of gentleness. We take on Jesus' yoke, a yoke of a gentle and lowly spirit, and we find rest for our souls, and we also find a community of souls. If we find a community of souls who found rest, we will find the surest road to becoming a community of peace. When we find rest in our own souls, we're far more likely to become a community of peace because we have that to bring to the community. Fourth, reconciliation. Gentleness opens the door to healing and hearing. Our present approach to injustice celebrates calling things out. If our first call doesn't work out, we shout louder and meaner. You're not, a you're not just a racist, you're a white supremacist or a Nazi, okay? On the other hand, you're not just a woke person or a lib, you're a heretic or a commie. You know, we certainly don't want to paper things over and say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. But please note, gentleness is not about failing to speak out, but rather about how we speak out, right? In a culture of shouting, gentleness actually opens doors. Disrupting, deconstructing, dismantling, these are really hot words in the academic academy these days in the universities. Disrupting, deconstructing, dismantling were once viewed as what you might call a necessary evil, a thing that you sometimes have to do. You have to tear it down before you build it up. That's how we historically viewed that. Um, now they're viewed as a positive virtue. I'm a disruptor. I'm a deconstructor. But no one seems to have a vision for how to move on from disrupting and deconstructing to reconciliation and harmony. And I'd like to just suggest that gentleness might help. And finally, forgiveness. 
Gentleness always involves giving something up that is rightfully yours. Many offenses cannot be repaid. They have to be forgiven. Remember the definition I read from Perry Glanzer. Gentleness is the willingness to forego power for the sake or benefit of another. Gentleness always involves letting something go. And because of that, it also involves letting something grow. In this case, what grows is forgiveness and second chances and fresh starts. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good crop to me. So let me suggest that the thing we need to do is to cultivate the soil of gentleness. If you'd like to do that, let me just give you like 30 second quick tip here. Um, here's some good things to think about. Ask yourself, what am I tweeting? Am I tweeting in the key of gentleness? <laughs> is that illegal? I'm not sure. They might have an editor that keeps gentle tweets from actually being published. I'm not sure. Maybe Elon Musk will solve that. But many of you don't tweet, um, and I'm not even sure tweeting is what I care most about. And obviously it could be posting, it could be whatever you do that way, but I'm actually more concerned about what we just say to each other. And particularly what we say to each other in our in-group. The people with whom you feel like you can let your hair down and say anything you want. Every now and then you might want to stop and ask each other, why do we want to say that to each other about people on this imagined other side? There's a good thing to do. Become self-reflective about how you talk to each other in your in-group. Here's the worst one for me. is even your own self-talk. I find myself out mowing the lawn or doing something like that and all of a sudden kind of snap out of it and I am 20 minutes into a tirade against someone I disagree with. I'll let you know as soon as I figure out how to stop that. But at the very least, it's good to be aware of that and just say, wait a minute, Rick. Dial it back, buddy. You're tweeting in some other key than gentleness. Here's a similar thing. Am I clicking in the key in gentleness? Am I wanting to read and find sources that help me think in moderate or gentle terms towards other people? Or is the first thing you do when you see a headline that seems inflammatory in a direction that you like to be inflamed, do you click on it? The great Indian chief of the Lakota Sioux, I have to give this specific reference because my wife is sitting there who has some Sioux uh, territory surrounding her back there in, uh, in, in North Dakota. Uh, Sitting Bull had this great phrase. He says, it's like there's two dogs at war within me, one evil and mean and one gentle and good. And, and when people ask which one's winning, I say, whichever one I feed. Do you feed the gentleness in your soul by what you read and what you click on? Or is it possible that your gentleness is starving and therefore weak? Here's an ugly one. How about if we just prayed that God would actually make us gentle? 
we would aspire to it in prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came from heaven to earth, that you set aside all your glory of heaven to enter into our sort of flesh and blood, and that one of the things you did as you did that was you incarnated your eternal gentleness. And Lord, I pray that we would let your spirit take root in our hearts, that the fruit of your spirit would be manifest to all those around us, both believers and non-believers, those in our family, those at work. Help us to be people who shine you forth through manifesting the fruit of your spirit in all we say and do. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.